Lights, lights out, and away we go. Podcasting from Studio 2025, somewhere near Akron, Ohio. This is Tackling the Chicane. All right. Welcome back. We've got a lot to discuss on the sophomore episode of our amazing show here. Uh, we're going to start with the Yori Vips controversy, the Red Bull development driver. We're going we're gonna to talk about porpoising. We're going to talk about drivers that are on the move or could be on the move in their contract situations. Uh, we're introducing a new segment called the Box Box segment. Uh, more on that to come. Uh, and then we're going to use the Red Bull model, discussing that as a little segue into our soccer part of the episode. Um, Columbus Crew, big transfer, bringing in Colombian Cucho Hernandez. We're going to talk Erling Holland to Man City. We're going to discuss the World Cups, including Qatar, and then the American one, World Cup 2026. We'll discuss that a little bit. We're going to talk about the men's national team's September window, and we might get into a little discussion on promotion and relegation. So we've got a busy episode. A full show for everybody today. And I have, uh, just in this short uh, time between the first and second episodes, I've got myself another laptop for quick searches and and uh, research and whatnot. I've also got my first show prep sheet, which uh, turned out to have much more information on it than I thought at first, but I think it's uh, it'll help at least me stay uh, within the conversation. Yep, uh, we're going fully professional here with our setup, I would say. Looks good, looks good. So, I guess um, let's talk about this Yuri, Yuri Vips controversy, and I have to admit, uh, hadn't heard of Yuri before you brought up this little uh, segment here. I F2 is something that I'm going to start you know, doing a little bit more research on so we can talk about its relevance uh, with the with the main uh, F1 series. But so tell me a little bit about what you know uh, well, what, and what, what exactly went down here. Well, I, the, I had known about him prior only because I had, with nothing else to do, watched a F1 practice session a few weeks back, I believe, for Barcelona. Friday session, so free practice one, and many of the teams were using their development drivers to run the car on that day, which you kind of see somewhat often, uh, and Yori Vips was in the Red Bull, so that's how I had heard about him, and then just staying up with the F1 social media, uh, it became apparent that uh, Yori found himself in a... Uh, Quite a bit of controversy after saying a racial slur on a video game live stream. Um, and in this day and age, you know, that's pretty much 
you get one strike and you're out with that kind of thing. And it looks like Yuri, uh, he struck out there big time. Well, I've got, uh, I did a little bit of research on it. Um, apparently they stream those, uh, those sessions on, on Twitch. Yeah. Which, um, I'm not super familiar with what that is exactly, but, um, it was listened to, uh, or followed by enough people that it, it, it became an issue. I know he's suspended at this point, uh, but I hadn't heard if, if that suspension is going to be permanent or if this is a temporary thing. Um, any news on, on where the team stands at this point? It seems like uh, Red Bull has pretty much given him the axe at this point. Um, I think he has also kind of accepted that fate. Now, of course, he's got friends in high places, shall we say, that, you know, have kind of come to his defense or whatever. Uh, but I just don't think in this day and age you can really get away with that comment and, you know, continue on, especially in a series like F2 or uh, you would expect him at some point to have been in Formula 1. I'm not saying he could never come back from this, but right now it's not looking too hot. Did they, <coughs> excuse me, did they release the the actual audio? Does anybody know? Yeah, well, what? yeah. When you're broadcasting on Twitch, which is a popular streaming site, mostly for video games, uh, yeah, you're not getting away with that. Um, yeah, so I've actually seen it. Um, yeah, so pretty much every, there's no hiding this. Everyone in the world that wants to see it uh, can pretty easily. Was it rough or, or was it a yeah. slip? Or uh, No, I don't think so. Okay. I would not call it that. Uh, not too dissimilar. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the NASCAR driver Kyle Larson, who drives for Hendrick, uh, did a very similar thing about two years ago. They suspended him for the whole 2020 season. Uh, but funnily enough, the next year he comes back and becomes the NASCAR champion. So uh, I don't know if uh, Yori's going to be able to come back quite like that. Obviously, it's a little different over here, uh, just in sport in general. But, uh, yeah, not a great look there. Well, there's a lot of uh, a lot of chances i guess to blow your ride um, that's one way to do it for sure so uh there'll be somebody else in line for Absolutely. for his seat <clears throat> especially for red bull so but we'll, we'll have to watch uh f2 see who ends up in that yeah on, in that ride so um looks like we wanted to talk a little bit about a term that until this year i i hadn't heard before but was thrown around quite a bit here the first half of the season and yeah, that's definitely porpoising so porpoising what is it well you're not gonna find like an amazing definition of it because it's kind of like not a very scientific term but from what i can gather and from the research i've done which hasn't been amazingly extensive but uh basically when teams are trying to get their car as low to the ground as legally possible to create downforce 
uh, it basically creates an effect on the car that sort of makes it like really bouncy and rough when you're driving, especially down a straight. Um, and we've seen a lot of guys struggle with that this year, Lewis Hamilton being the, the biggest one so far. Um, Baku was a big problem with porpoising because it has a super long straight and you saw a lot of teams having to deal with that issue over that weekend. It got so bad for the Mercedes team that basically Hamilton said, I, I can't drive the car if it's going to, if it's going to, excuse me, handle it this way. Uh, physically I can't drive it. And there were a few, a few races here earlier this year, where he, he was in such physical pain by the end of the race that he was frustrated. And, and I think they basically went to the engineers and said, I don't, you know, let's, whatever we have to do to make this stop, if we lose some, some arrow advantage to do that, basically the underside of these cars has a series of uh, Venturi tunnels that air passes through that creates downforce. And when your ride height is such that that air gets disturbed moving through those tunnels, that's what causes the bounce. So it's a, it's a fine line between tuning the ride height and getting the downforce that you require and stopping, stopping the actual bouncing of the car. So, from what I understand, the ma- the major issue is is if they adjust the ride height to a certain level, on some tracks the curbing is higher than other tracks. The curbing being those usually white and, and red sections of track that sort of define a corner or an apex. Um, but if they have some height to them and you you have your car set too low. Um, it, it causes uh, the car to be unhappy as you pass over the, that curbing. Yeah. Um, it, can, it can cause major, major issues. Uh, we've seen guys uh, hit curbs in such a way that, you know, they don't recover and uh, they might spin out or in some cases they'll go off course, hit the wall. So Mercedes claims that they have a super stiff setup and a lower ride height but they're constantly struggling with what those two um, adjustments do to uh, dealing with the curbing. So yeah, well, they, they haven't admitted to, to fixing, to coming up with a quote-unquote fix, Yeah, but it seems uh, that they are, they're performing much better the last few races. So they've got, they're on to something, whatever they're doing. Yeah, uh, we're also getting to that point in the season where upgrades are starting to become a factor, so that could also be one of the reasons. And with this whole issue, you just you have to strike a balance at some point between performance and then just the general health of your drivers. Uh, there were reports of Lewis Hamilton uh, withstanding with 10 Gs of force at Baku, which is like, an insane amount of pressure and you you definitely have to take into consideration the long-term effects that would have on drivers yeah so obviously 
10 G's, I mean, fighter jets don't, they pull five or six just for maybe a half a minute or, you know, 20 seconds at a time, yeah. 15 seconds at a time. So I don't know if those were breaking forces or if it was just uh, what they equated the bouncing around to. Um, yeah. But when they showed his helmet cam several times, uh, I, I wouldn't want to be in that car for yeah. Well, and it's that distance. <laughs> it's not obviously Hamilton's like the highest, uh, like the highest profile case of this. But I've I've seen it just watching the Ferraris, especially like just a lot. It looks like a very very rough ride sometimes. So I'm I'm sure that is not very fun for anyone involved. Well, I I also know that this balance between ride height and aero downforce and dealing with the Venturi tunnels on the bottom of the car have always, you know, created some issue with how they're setting the, setting the cars up. Um, The porpoising I think is new to this year because of major changes in the underside of the car. Mm -hmm. And it was just an, it was an unexpected effect uh, that, you know, you can't, you can do so much math, but until you put the car out on the track and, and get some laps under your belt, it's hard to say, uh, what, what, how the car is going to react. So I do know that it's been a, a buzzword amongst all the teams, not just Mercedes. I think Mercedes got focused on because of the complaint, you know, they had the most complaints from from the two drivers yeah so and with mercedes not at least for the first part of the season not being in championship form let's say that's probably something that a lot of the media would focus on just to keep them like crucially into the story of the season but i I mean just going off of results there they'll definitely be around towards the end but that's a whole nother discussion i would say yeah, yeah, for sure. So what What else do we ha- have to talk about? Uh, So I just want to talk about some of these drivers that could be on the move. We have a lot of contracts that are set to be expired at the end of the year, and uh, some of those I think are actually going to be of real concern. Uh, we did see Pierre Gasly just re-upped with AlphaTauri, so that was a, a pretty big uh, news headline. And I would say it shows that he's not uh, giving up on this Red Bull seat at some point because there was, I'm sure there was interest from other teams. Well, at least through uh, 2023, 20, according to what I read, so... Another year. Yeah. And, uh, well, that brings me to an interesting point because Sergio Perez of Red Bull's contract expires at the end of the year. Uh, but I think you would agree that he is probably most likely getting re-upped unless he wanted to leave, which I can't see that happening either. I don't think it's official, but my understanding is is that if he – does re-up it will be through 2024 so 
apparently they're anticipating that that he's going to stick around for at least two more years. Yeah, and I would say that's probably the best move for everyone involved, just based on recent performance. Well, and all Verstappen does is have to either take the championship again this year or be in the hunt, and he's guaranteed he can stick around as long as he likes at this point. Yeah, I think everyone at Red Bull is pretty comfortable with their situation. Uh, Perhaps a team that is not is Aston Martin. Uh, Both those drivers' contracts expire at the end of the year. Add to the fact that Lawrence Stroll, team owner, I don't think is amazingly dead set on sticking around with Aston Martin at all. There's been a lot of speculation about whether or not that is going to continue. Although a lot of that discussion was uh, pre-upgrades and slightly improved performance, but obviously Lance Stroll is going to go wherever his dad goes. So, I mean, yeah, his contract's set to expire. I'm sure uh, he's still going to have a seat in F1 regardless. Uh, Vettel... Sebastian Vettel, I'm not so sure because he's starting to get, you know, up there in age and, you know, he's he's putting out consistent performances, but he's not setting the world alight. So that that's definitely an interesting one. He's definitely he's not happy. No. That's that's very apparent that he he's not real happy right now and I don't know if that's just the position that he's in with this particular team or if if he's coming to grips with the fact that, you know, not sure how much longer I can or want to do this. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this team. I, I look for, uh, if Stroll leaves, I look for, obviously there's going to be a sponsorship change of some kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could see two new, two new drivers at Aston Martin next yeah. year. I Yeah, I think a lot of this team obviously depends on Lawrence Stroll and what's going on with that. I Vettel is interesting because I think if you put him in a like one of the higher tier cars, he's going to win races. Um and, but I don't know if uh he really like you said, I just don't really know if his heart's in it for Aston Martin so much as, you know, I I think he's just struggling with the fact that he is not in a very competitive car. Um, but he, you know, he he's up there in age. He is a world champion, and there's someone similar to that in Fernando Alonso for Alpine, whose contract expires at the end of the year. Also, uh, do you think anyone takes a punt on him next year, or does Alpine? Stay Keep him around? Um, Alonzo has the name. I mean, he's got the chops. I, I think he's well-liked in the F1 community. Um, he's kind of the senior driver, I think, yeah. uh, of all the of this field that we have out there right now. Yeah, I believe he is the oldest. I think he's the oldest. He's Listen, he's not going back to McLaren or anything like that. No. So Alpine's put on a a pretty decent program this year. Why not? Yeah. Uh yeah, I he's that guy that, you know, you can't really see him in any other 
team, and I think at this point it's Alpine or retire. So that that's I, where he stands for me. Uh, Williams, similar to Aston Martin, uh, a team where both seats, the contracts are set to expire at the end of the year. We have Nicholas Latifi. Uh, I'm not even sure he will be in Formula One next year. Then we have Alex Albon, who's basically a Red Bull protege and has a Red Bull contract. So he actually might stick around at Williams uh, just biding his time. And Red Bull, I think, is comfortable with him driving there. They're fine with it, I think. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is is that until Williams gets their program together, if they ever do, um, he's going to have to look. Albon is going to have to look to the future. He's going to have to keep his eye on on some other team. Um, these guys don't want to drive for the last place. No constructor, <laughs> and he's better than that. And he of the three points Williams has, he has all of them. So. You put him in a better car. He's scoring points, I think, somewhat regularly. So, I, yeah, I don't think he really wants to be at Williams. Uh, but if he's getting a seat, he's getting money, uh, and the Red Bull setup doesn't look like they have room for him right now, I think you just kind of have to take it how it is. Yeah, you never know. I mean... Still have a lot of racing to do this year. Things change pretty rapidly. If wins don't come for some of these teams, um, we could see driver shift just because. Yeah. And we're not to the point in the season where, you know, these big, huge moves are taking place anyways. I'm sure eventually that will come. Um, but, uh, I want to talk about Mick Schumacher and All right, sir. <laughs> the situation with Haas and Mick Schumacher's somewhat uh, funny accent. Um, but, yeah, so he is set to expire at the end of the year, and I would say he hasn't really impressed much with his time at Haas. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with Mick Schumacher? Well... His lineage <laughs> will keep him in the sport regardless. Yeah, at least for now. Um, eventually, he's going to have to pay the piper at some point with, you know, not tearing cars up every other race. <laughs> yeah, not great. Unfortunately, I, you know, it's, I think it's a case of sometimes a guy might look much worse uh, skill. His driving skills might not convey when you when you see some of the things that happen to him so mm -hmm. we know that mechanical failures happen with these cars and sometimes it's easy for the spectator to go well what did he do yeah he might not have done anything <laughs> if, if you break a major component or something fails yeah the next tv camera shot is the guy's car is it is in basically two in two pieces yeah <laughs> But that's one thing F1, they never, there's, there's never a public 
autopsy of of what happened or what even in I've been looking at some periodicals and websites and trying to trying to get information on just the how the cars are put together is not easy. Yeah. Um and they it seems like there's never a, a real dissection of when incidents do happen. And that's by design. I mean the teams aren't gonna go, yeah, well this this was a real piece of crap this race and, and Yeah. I, I think the the nature of the sport and how these cars are built basically keep the casual fan away from knowing how these things are really built and if you're watching a race and someone crashes or there's an engine failure you know you're not really gonna know what happens because the teams don't really want you to know what happens i think it's gonna come down to where does haas fall in the constructors championship yeah um and can he score some points yeah, I there needs to be instances of point scoring pretty soon. Uh, I think Haas, you know, realistically are probably shooting for seventh or eighth tops. They're ninth right now, but um, yeah, I don't really. I mean, Haas have had drivers in the past that you know seem to just mess up all the time, and they're still they they stay quite a while. Uh, Romain Grosjean is a good example of that until eventually he really messed it up and almost costed him his life. But uh, I, I think with Mick Schumacher, he's going to have a lot of time to you know build up his chops. I don't know how long that would be at Haas because they kind of need results and they're operating on such a tight budget. But you certainly are going to need to start seeing some results if you're going to go yeah Haas is going to re-sign this guy well th- this is Michael Schumacher's son correct <laughs> yeah so Haas took a gamble that if we could just get a piece of what Michael Schumacher did for the sport 20 years ago 15 yeah. years ago I think a lot of teams are taking that gamble at least the teams that are not, you know, Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, they're probably in that situation that Haas were in. We're definitely going to be taking that gamble for sure. I I think in one of the upcoming episodes, I want to talk about point structure. Um, I'm looking at the standings here, and admittedly, I don't have the breakdown of what position gets you how many points. Yeah. as a constructor, so on and so forth. So that's definitely in, um, in my notes here to to dig into a little bit. But just mathematically speaking, um, even between one and two, we're, we're looking at almost 80 points. Looks like about, what, 76 or so points Yeah, between Red Bull and Ferrari. It's going to get to the point in the season where if – it's not a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth deal between the two of those. If Red Bull takes three Grand Prix in a row, uh, you know, is it mathematically possible for Ferrari to come back? Yeah. And well, I mean, look, if you look at the rest of these guys, if Haas can just finish in the top 10, 
you know they're they're ninth now but they only have 15 points constructor points <laughs> so yeah. for them to even move up you know four or five spots well that would be huge i that's not going to happen i i really think 7th is their ceiling right now and even that's probably not realistic at all based on their performances i think they're you're battling you're battling Aston Martin pretty much that's the most comparable team in terms of performance so far. Well, it also, you know, it does a lot for the team. If they could just get a couple of races in a row where they have a decent team finish, where one car isn't out, you know, maybe two guys in the points would do wonders. Well, they had that opportunity last race, and that was squandered within, I don't know, 20 laps. So not totally their fault, but you've got to qualify well, which they don't really tend to do that often, and then put together a half-decent race performance, especially when, you know, some of these races have been practically begging the smaller teams to score with all these major DNFs, but... Yeah, they don't really seem to ever get it together when it matters. Well, you you hit the nail right on the head. What needs to happen is when Ferrari's main team has a power failure. <laughs> yeah. But when you're running the same technology, it they were just lucky to to have one car finish when they had the, those failures. Yeah. At, at the Canadian Grand Prix. So. Yeah, there's certainly uh few teams hampered by that uh, bond with Ferrari, shall we say. One of those being Alfa Romeo and their driver, Joe Guan Yu, the rookie contract set to expire this year. Uh, So far, when he's finished, he's done decent. Uh, He doesn't finish that often. Not always his fault. Sometimes reliability issues. Uh, Other times with crashes, I this one feels to me like their Alfa Romeo is definitely gonna ink a deal with him, regardless of what happens for the rest of the year. I don't know about you. Well, Botas likes him. Yeah, Botas uh, has nothing but good things to say about him, and I don't know what that means for Botas himself. I if there's if there's a guy who may. Of those two drivers, uh, Botas is the one that's probably not going to be at Alfa Romeo next year. Yeah, pop, and, and yeah. I and I don't know he I don't know that he's going to have a seat next year. But we've seen in the past too, where you know these guys have to they'll sit out an entire season until another yeah. opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I I I think Botas is I think he'll be around. I don't know his exact contract situation. He he has scored most of the points for Alfa Romeo, but again, that that's partially because Joe Guan Yu has not finished that many races. Uh, Alfa Romeo are a team that could be really competitive, and I'm not saying they aren't competitive. They're they're firmly you know mid table team, but uh, I think Joe Guan Yu putting together some more consistent performances for the rest of the season. He'll be just fine for next year, I would say. Um, a team that has recently been struggling, 
quite a bit is McLaren, and they happen to have, I don't know, the world's favorite racer probably in Daniel Ricciardo. Um, this one's interesting because he is inked until 2023, but we're not entirely sure if that if he's going to go through with next year because he's not really racing that well for McLaren. So, um, well, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Um, to a degree, some of this from a marketing perspective is how much merch can we can we shill at people which is infinite with Daniel Ricardo exactly so Zach Brown's no he's no dummy when it comes to that you have to have people that are interested in your drivers you can have a successful program you can have a driver who finishes on the podium every race and if he's not well received it's a problem. Yeah, and I think all, most race fans like personalities, regardless of if they're cool or, you know, kind of stuck up or whatever. And Ricardo's one of those just really likable guys and the way he presents himself, the way he acts towards the media and the fans. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I think they'll keep him around. And he's a good enough racer to where I think, you know, give him a car he's comfortable in, he, he will definitely give you results. But, I mean, it's been a few years now to where he has, hasn't has really been all that great, and he wasn't really that great with Renault, uh, his team prior. And, I mean, his final days at Red Bull weren't amazingly impressive. So I don't know if this is... a downward trend or a sign of a downward trend for him uh but i i don't know i think regardless of if he stays at mclaren someone will scoop him up at least for another year or two so i i I think he's decently comfortable in this series right now all right well do you uh i think that pretty much covers what i wanted to talk about with uh this contract stuff Okay. Uh, do you want to, you know, give everyone the debut of your big series here? My new segment? Yeah. My new technical segment or our new technical segment? Yeah. Um, we're going to call it Box Box, and that is a reference to the radio call for pitting. Which, so Yeah, which some drivers don't like when they hear that and (laughs) they make that very clear on their team radios yes so when when it when a driver is called to the pits for either a tire well it's always a tire change (laughs) f we'll talk about that a little bit uh inbox box today but how about if we just roll into that box box All right, our first segment of Box Box, and we're going to talk today about minimum weights. What does an F1 car weigh? When we see see the, the shape and, and the stature of these things on TV, uh, 
it's really hard to understand just how powerful, how fast, um, you know, the technology involved. So if we can just talk a little bit about that every episode, I think it's, it's kind of a neat thing for, for the folks that, that are, that are following the series, but, um, an F1 car in 2022 and this, these specs or stats or or you know specifications they they can vary from season to season but the uh the weight minimum uh dry which is um no fuel no driver 798 kilograms can which, you americanize that please yes i can <laughs> thanks to google 1759 pounds is what the car weighs I'm going to try to give you an example of just how light that is. Uh, the average passenger car is more like 4,250 pounds. Yeah. The average SUV full size is around 55 to 6,200 pounds. So these cars weigh less than one ton and they have uh, power units that are somewhere around a thousand thousand fifty horsepower again for the layperson you know your typical mid-sized suv that weighs 4600 pounds might have somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 horsepower or so yeah some of them are way less than that yeah anymore uh, you're probably more in the ones for that i you, think yeah so your civic for example that's 180-something horsepower. Yeah. This is almost 10 times that. And my car probably weighs more. It, prob- well, these, almost it probably weighs almost double. Yeah. So just give you an idea. And, you know, modern cars aren't exactly slow. No. So I'm trying to help you visualize 750. 1,759 pounds and 1,050 horsepower is a pretty scary number. It's a big number. Um, Typically on race day with a full fuel load, um, which is around an extra 110 kilograms, um, 243 pounds of fuel, if you divide that by 8 pounds per gallon, which is what we usually, what a gallon weighs, the cars uh, at lights out or carrying around 30 gallons of fuel that well that's a huge gas tank for a car of the size of a formula one car that would be big for well that'd be gigantic for any sedan either that you'd see on the road so that's that's definitely an interesting it's about double the size of a standard most passenger cars are between 12 and 15 gallons yeah um one thing i i I'm pretty sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I think there's calculation involved in, and I could be wrong, I want to I check this out so that I'm saying the right thing maybe next time, but I don't know if everybody has to start with the same fuel load. I would think that that would almost have to be the case. Well, that there's, there has to be, everybody has 30 gallons to start. 
I, I, I don't know if that's the case. It could be more of like you can run with as much fuel as you want, but if you go past this number in either direction, you're just kind of stupid. You know what I mean? Where it's just kind of like implied that you run with however much fuel. I guess what I'd be interested to find out, and I will, is as an engineer, can you say we think we only need 28 and a half gallons to get to the checkered flag in this race and that's going to save us you know 16 pounds so we're only going to run 28 and a half gallons about there well i've seen instances at the end of these races where they're you know easy on the throttle we're going to conserve fuel so that almost that that seems like maybe teams are running with different amounts of fuel that's every freaking lap every lap they're adjusting trim and usage um you can basically dial back the amount of fuel that's being used at any given time, but it, obviously that affects everything. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also talk about, you know, the layout of the basic layout of the powertrain for 2022. Um, 2022 spec cars are running, generically speaking, it's a it's a turbo, it's a V6. And it obviously it's a combustion engine, but for those of you that are really not into any kind of mechanics at all, when we say V6, we have three cylinders on each side of the engine block and they're arranged in a V shape. So if you can imagine the center of the block has what they call the crank, which is where, what transfers all of the combusted power to the powertrain Mm -hmm. so it's like a shaft okay yeah those pistons are in a v formation that's what the v6 is it's turbo which is also known as forced induction and what what a turbocharger does is it forces air into the cylinders more air more fuel more bang yeah that's what a turbo does compressed air um, it's a more powerful explosion in, in each, each piston. Therefore you, it creates more hot horsepower. I don't know what the displacement on these V sixes are. They're not very big, uh, to be able to get that kind of horsepower out of a, of a V six is pretty impressive. One thing of note with F one technology, they also utilize a double or what I call a dual hybrid system. So we've got not one, but two electric motors that work in conjunction with the regular uh, combustion V6. And interestingly enough, one of the electric motors is connected directly to the crankshaft, directly to the same shaft that the pistons are connected to. And that is what gives them the ability for push to pass basically. Okay. Uh, and we'll talk about DRS in another episode, but that's all, these things are all working in concert with each other to give the drivers on demand power and miles per hour to get past that person in front of them. We've seen it. Mm -hmm. So when you're watching the race, everybody listen for those terms, I guess DRS we'll talk about later. Um, 
but when you're hearing push push they're actually they're 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 actually telling the driver to push that push the pass button use that electric motor you get another 15 20 miles an hour yeah you just can bomb right by the guy well one thing i've learned is on these cars like everything is a setting on the wheel it seems you know everything's a button everything can be controlled very easily from the cockpit there was a funny comparison years ago uh and nascar has finally taken a step forward from the 1970s with this latest series car that they have um it was an infographic that showed a nascar steering wheel and an f1 steering wheel and the nascar wheel was like 85 dollars and the f1 wheel was twenty five thousand, and that was 10 years ago so the wheels that i've noticed that in the series this year are even more have even more technology than they did you know a season or two ago so pretty crazy um the other i just wanted to finish up the box box segment the other electric or hybrid motor is connected directly to the turbo charger itself and what that allows is you don't have to wait for the turbo charger to spin up and make boost there's a term in in uh, the racing world and otherwise called turbo lag for those of you who haven't heard of turbo lag before and hopefully i'm not garrett's starting to oh i'm listening okay all right I, I need my white lab coat for this segment. That's why we're going to try to keep it, you know, around eight minutes or so. But we're getting into the nuts and bolts. Of well, the yes. Car. You know, you guys hear these terms, and if you don't know what they are, it's kind of it's kind of uh, interesting to uh, to know how these things work. But that second hybrid motor basically eliminates turbo lag. So I step on the gas. I don't have to wait one and a half or two seconds for that turbo to spool up, create boost, and then I take off. Mm-hmm. With that electric motor, it, it keeps the, the turbo spinning at the right RPM so that it's instantaneous. That's all you need to know. Yeah, well, I mean, the the sport is defined by, you know, split-second things. So that's a very, very important part of the car is when you want to, you know, use the turbo i want it now you know interestingly enough i was just reading an article in another periodical mercedes has a car that's coming out in late 2023 or early 2023 uh, that utilizes that same hybrid technology on the street version of this v6 engine so Mm -hmm. Mercedes and Honda does it too, and Ferrari does it too. If it works in F1, eventually it makes it to the street because these are these racing platforms are at the end of the day, all it is is development. Yeah. For the street versions. But that car that's coming out, Mercedes is using this same motor generator unit or hybrid system on the street version of the turbo, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an interesting point. Just that, you know, 
these racing teams, these manufacturers put so much money into it because they're, you know, kind of always looking to use this technology to sell cars, which is an interesting thing you don't really see in other series of motorsports. Well, I'll date myself big time. And there used to be a saying that I believe it started in NASCAR, but it, it's pretty much can take it from series to series. It's called win on Sunday, sell on Monday. <laughs> yeah. Well, NASCAR is interesting because, you know, you're supposed to be running on like a street car chassis, you know, in theory. So, I don't know, when you see the Thunderbird back in the day win a bunch of races, a lot of people, especially when NASCAR was so popular, you go, I want to get that car. My favorite racer drives that car, you know? Oh, the best example of that was in the late, mid-90s to early 2000s, obviously. And Jeff Gordon appeared in in the mid-90s. Nobody had ever seen... Anything like he was just a young kid, you know, he had a, he had a ton of money. DuPont just threw money at the program. Mm -hmm. They sold more Monte Carlos, I think, in the years that that kid was behind the wheel than I've, than I can ever remember, uh, in the modern time, uh, people going out and buying a car just because same thing with the Earnhardts and Tony Stewart, they all did it. They would, they would come up with a special edition Mm -hmm. or sign you know a hundred cars or whatever and they couldn't keep them on the showroom floor Uh, interestingly enough they don't go for shit now (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i saw a low mile earnhardt senior edition monte carlo that was signed by him and it had not it had like less than a thousand miles on it and i think it sold on bring a trailer for i don't know 25 or 30 grand yeah well, talking about the downfall of NASCARs, perhaps uh, for another time. But sure, we gotta we gotta keep marching on here because we're loaded with excellent conversation pieces. I want to talk about everyone's favorite uh, soft energy drinks brand, Red Bull, and their impact on the sporting world. Uh, as we all know or some of us would know on this podcast, Red Bull has one hell of an F1 team and has for a while. Did you know Red Bull has a top flight uh, Brazilian soccer club? I don't know. I, I'm going to wager no one here knew that other than myself, if you'll let me indulge a little bit. Um, Red Bull is pretty much involved in like every sport you can think of in some way or another. So when you you said we were going to talk about this, I went to the Red Bull website because that's the fastest, easiest way for me to to get information. And just for, let me just lay out some of the sports that they're involved in. For example, oh, excellent. Uh, mountain biking, which okay, I can see that. Yeah, cliff diving, <laughs> break dancing. Competition breakdancing. Okay, now now I'm genuinely shocked because I wouldn't have thought of that. November 12th, 2022 will be the Red Bull BC 1 World Final, which is, I think, 
break championship and it's singles. That'll be the world final in in November, which I can't can't imagine I could sit through more than about three minutes of that. But well, I don't know. They're they're all obviously very heavily involved in esports of all kinds. Yeah, uh, pro am basketball, and most recently, which I didn't get a chance to watch, but I see it's on Hulu, so I'm gonna watch it for the next episode. But ap- apparently, they did a a plane swap where they had two aircraft approach each other and the pilots swapped seats. Uh, I've seen Red Bull plastered on the most ridiculous stuff like that. Like the one time there was a guy that literally like jumped off a plane that was like in space basically and he was decked out in Red Bull gear. So they are literally involved in everything. Uh, what what do you think? How do you feel about a energy drink company sponsoring? Well, not even sponsoring, being a freaking F1 team. What? How do you feel about that? Well, it makes total sense. I mean, they're Red Bull sells a lifestyle. They're not, if they just wanted to put their eggs in, in motorsport basket only, um, clearly not the case. They'll, they're going to wherever as many, wherever they can put the, get their name on the side of something or in the main sponsorship of something, they're going to do it. Uh, I did a little bit of research just about Red Bull to give you an idea of their footprint in, in the sports energy drink world mm-hmm. uh 9.8 billion cans sold billion <laughs> in 2021 i was under the impression they were an italian company wrong they're an austrian company yeah the uh red bull ring which is of course a track that f1 goes to is in austria so. okay so yeah um makes total sense to me i guess i do I think that they don't have any issue with not having any particular budget? I, I don't think. Of all the F1 teams, I think Mercedes, Red Bull, and Ferrari are probably the top three best-funded teams. Well, yeah, I don't even, yeah, not even a discussion, really. McLaren, I think, is probably after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could go down the line Aston Martin and Alfa Romeo are probably fairly similar Alfa Tari has whatever money they Red need because it's Red Bull yep. uh Haas is probably the one that you know they probably go from season to season like uh, what the hell are we going to do now we got to balance the checkbook right so but I do I do also think um because of the success of the Miami race this year and the continued success of the circuit of Americas in Texas and, and then with Las Vegas in 2023, we're going to see at least one additional American F1 team in the near future, whether it's 2024 or 25, they can't continue to create the buzz in the U S and only have just the one team. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Um, let's 
use Red Bull as a segue here into soccer. Uh, so Red Bull is involved in soccer pretty much everywhere around the world. Here, for example, we have Red Bull or RB Leipzig. Uh, they're technically not allowed to be Red Bull, which we can get into later with German football laws. RB Leipzig, uh, winner of the German Cup this year, not the league championship, but the cup competition. RB Salzburg in Austria. Um, the New York Red Bulls in Major League Soccer. Red Bull Bragancino in Brazil. I believe they're somewhere over in Asia as well. So they have, they have a footprint in every major market of soccer. And it basically functions as one giant farm system. Uh, RB Leipzig, competing in the German top flight, the Bundesliga, is kind of like the crown jewel. You know, it's like the majors. But they, they basically have a whole system of a network, a network of clubs where at any given time they can pretty much buy, buy quote-unquote, the player they like from one of their other Red Bull clubs and just bring them to the uh, um, RB Leipzig or whatever club they want to bring it to at any given time. So that's created a lot of controversy, shall we say. Any other, any other sponsor in European football that has the same advantage? Or uh, is this a, that, are they on an okay, island? Okay, so in terms of just blatantly being a sponsor of a team, no. Um, in Germany, they're probably the most hated club, second, not even second, they're the most hated club in Germany um, because they basically go against every principle of, you know, football purist, modern, or not modern, but football purist, uh, soccer culture in that they are owned by a soft drinks company. In Germany, you're supposed to have, a f- it's called the 50 plus one rule, where clubs have to have 50% and then plus one uh, owned by the fans. So it's not like just some big wig billionaire that owns the club. Red Bull, technically 50 plus one, except for a club like, I don't know, Borussia Dortmund with 30,000 owners. Red Bull has nine, and their way of getting around that was pretty much just giving out, like, nine uh, ownership uh, passes or whatever to people they want, but technically nine, 50 plus one, they're owned by the fans, all nine of them that they allowed to have stake in the club. So that's created a lot of controversy. Well, one of the things I noticed, especially in the States, like for example, the the crew. Yeah. I don't see I see one, maybe one sponsor uh on their yeah. jerseys. Well, so sponsorships in general are like a thing that have been a part of soccer since like the seventies. Uh and that started in Germany. Uh like the shirt sponsors. I think that's one thing that like an American that starts watching soccer would just be like, well, that's kind of weird. Although it's starting to creep into American sports more and more. But uh, 
Yeah, so Red Bull, all their clubs are literally, like, they don't have to worry about sponsorship because they're just owned by a drinks company. But, like, yeah, any team uh, around the world is going to have, like, a primary shirt sponsor. Uh, the crew is Nationwide, for example, and that's because of Nationwide's tie to Columbus. Uh, but those are, like, sold to those companies, you know? It's not like a fabric of their ownership like it is for Red Bull. So that's the main difference. Um, At the end of the day, does Red Bull's presence in all of European football help the advancement of the sport? Or does it well, does y- it yes, it? Yes. I am going to argue yes because they pump out prospects like no other. I mean... They they just have a tendency of developing really great uh, talent. And you mentioned it. They promote a lifestyle. There's a certain type of soccer you're going to see when you watch Red Bull. And it's, it's like heavy metal football, balls to the wall, huge press called Gagan pressing, uh, depending on the coach. You're going to see that more or less on the Red Bull team. But it's like watching soccer on cocaine if that makes sense it's just like balls to the wall they don't care if they're conceding a goal because they're going to try and score six more you know um and i've paid attention to him quite a bit because tyler adams a starting midfielder and kind of one of the stars of the u.s men's national team has spent his whole professional career in that red bull setup starting with the New York Red Bulls of MLS, and then um, at RB Leipzig in Germany. So he, he's actually one of those guys that has greatly benefited from that Red Bull model. And you can talk about the ethicality of having, you know, a drinks company own teams and literally, like, be the namesake of teams, which, yeah, that's not my favorite thing in the world, but in terms of the football they play, the soccer they play, and, like, the the talent they pump out, I, I really do think it has been good for the game overall. Well, I, I don't have a problem with with energy drinks in general, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I Not to go down the, the, mor- the morality road, but Everything in moderation, as long as you're not drinking seven a day, (laughs) I don't think a Red Bull is going to hurt you. Um, And let's face it, alcoholic beverages have been sponsoring major sports since the beginning of time. They just don't, they're in the background. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the most iconic clubs ever to exist, your Liverpool, your Celtics, uh, have been sponsored by like a beer. So... uh, I mean, yeah, football, soccer, not the place you're going to want to go for ethicality and morality, really. Uh, and I don't think any professional sports is where you're going to look for that. Um, you mentioned, and this is where we'll kind of cap off this Red Bull thing. You mentioned uh, a comparable thing of, like, is there a company that owns a bunch of clubs or has a network? Um, Manchester City have the city football group that basically does the same thing as Red Bull, but it's not as, dare I say, corny with the branding in that they, you know, have bought or created a bunch of clubs. New York City FC, 
current MLS champion being uh, one of those, uh, where it's like a network of clubs, and they're all kind of, you know, under the same umbrella of teams. And Manchester City, since their takeover by a big oil Middle Eastern gurus in 2008, have, uh, you know, they're not the most popular club in the world, and they have a lot of money to spend. But, yeah, so that, that that's the similar thing with Red Bull, I would say. Hmm. So, go, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, and it's hard right now because there's not, like, a lot of soccer to actually watch. But, I, you know, I, I think a lot of this, even if you don't know much about soccer, is still an interesting thing. Absolutely. Well, let's – I want to maybe – choose a match between now and the next podcast and we'll whether we record it and watch it or watch it live um and i'll 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 gather some questions or or some comments but i think even before the real season starts we'll probably have to start watching at least a match or two every once in a while together Mm mm-hmm um, so let's do that. Maybe, yeah. Maybe choose a match before the next podcast and I'll, we'll watch it together and I'm sure I'll have questions. Yeah. Yeah. There, There's definitely stuff to talk about. Uh, our hometown club being the Columbus Crew, uh, they have recently been in the news and I think that will probably be who we end up watching between now and the next episode. Uh, but the Columbus Crew have signed... Cucho Hernandez, a 23-year-old Colombian striker from English club Watford, uh, for a record club record fee of around $10 million U.S. Um, so obviously this is a big uh, thing for them because club record fee, striker, he scores goals, you know, gets butts in seats, sells jerseys. Um, the crew have been... Pretty much, uh, not terrible, but they aren't good this year, and they have scored 18 goals in 15 matches, which is just dreadful. Um, and they sold away their, traded away their uh, star striker Giassi Zardes earlier in the season, so it was on the front office to fill this gaping hole. And I think Cucho Hernandez is a guy that with this Premier League experience is definitely looking to make some waves in MLS. I remember Giassi. Was he the, did he have like super white hair? Yeah. He had like the blonde frosted tips. Yeah. Yeah. So this acquisition is going to try, they're trying to put uh, some more dynamics on the field. Yeah. Basically it's been a, huge issue of scoring goals this year um and I think selling Giassi Zardes was kind of a look you're getting up in age and we also kind of want money while we still can get it and um yeah I think Cucho Hernandez is a guy that is definitely going to bring goals to MLS um and I think the front office knows that there's a lot of pressure on the from the fans for a number of different reasons, not all related to on-field performance, but 
yeah, this deal definitely needed to get done for sure. So I'm looking forward to that. He's going to be eligible in July at some point uh, to play for the crew. So that hopefully turns around the season as a crew fan. So he was acquired. Yeah. Now he has to wait. Uh, basically, you know, you got to get registered work per- permits, visas, you know, you got to take all of that into consideration in soccer because you're not necessarily buying someone that lives in your country. So a lot of added wrinkles. Um, uh, just another, I don't, I just added this on today because it just recently happened. Uh, but Gareth Bale of Real Madrid fame, who I think is a club you at least know the name of, uh, he's a Welsh striker and has sort of pretty much cemented himself as like probably the greatest Welsh soccer player to ever play, inked a deal with MLS uh, uh, club LAFC, uh, owned partially by Will Farrell. So that was interesting. Uh, LAFC have also bought Giorgio Chiellini from Juventus earlier in the year, who's another big name. Um, so that 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 is one of those transfers that garners a lot of attention anytime you buy someone from a club like Real Madrid and bring it to MLS it's going to send waves similar to one David Beckham coming across the pond all those years ago so that that's another big transfer um just one more Erling Holland to Man City that happened a while ago but it's a big one in the fact that what I we really don't watch the NBA or anything, but I just want to make this comparison, especially for people that do. If like let's say Messi is the LeBron James right now, Erling Holland is like oh God, I don't know. I don't watch the NBA at all. So just like one of those young talents that you think might be like the heir to the throne of being the best player in soccer. Um, so Erling Holland coming to Man City, I just want to touch on his goal record. He's a Norwegian. He's 21 or 22. He's tall as hell. He comes from German club Borussia Dortmund. In 88 games, he scored 85 goals, which is a ridiculous goal tally. If, if you're anywhere in the ballpark of scoring like every other game, that's that is a good return. So if you're scoring almost every time you touch the field, that is like ridiculous levels. And who is he going to, who is he playing for or who is he going to be playing for? He will be playing for Manchester City of the English Premier League, who I know you know of because I am a fan of. It's your favorite team. Yes. And I watch every game. So, yeah. We, Man City, I shouldn't say we as a podcast host, but Man City have gotten, are getting rid of two attacking players this year after this league campaign in which they won the championship, the Premier League. Um, and this this one is one of those transfers where, you know, you, you expect big things from him and big things to happen for sure. Well, I'm interested to see what happens with this guy. He, if he's scoring yeah. uh, that often, 
that'll, and, that'll pique my interest because at least there's a chance that something will happen <laughs> when yeah. I go to watch one of these games. Well, and I was just going to say, as I'm trying to convert you to this religion of soccer, uh, Man City is literally like a must-watch team, whether you like them or not. They play like just the most exciting brand of football, of soccer you can imagine. I think like if you're watching a City game, there's going to be three, four, five goals every game. And usually they dominate like everyone they play. Uh, not always, but even when they are uh, struggling, you know, they, they play a brand of soccer that's just very attractive. So I think once this European calendar uh, gets rolling here within the next month, uh, that's definitely a team you're going to have to watch. Sounds good. Um, Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm really excited for this European season just because I can, like, this is, like, the bread and butter of how to get you into the game, you know. And it also helps that we're starting this in a World Cup year, and that's really easy. That's, like, as easy as it gets to become a soccer fan because it's such a huge thing. I do want to talk about the World Cup. Uh I think you have some notes over there on this upcoming World Cup that is set to be played in Qatar in November. Yeah, well, I was interested first and foremost because the company that I work for has product in that stadium that they built. Okay. Um, I've only seen pictures of it, obviously, but it looks like a fantastic venue. Um, first World Cup in an Arab nation? That is correct. Uh, this is basically inevitably opening up a can of worms that we kind of just have to talk about. How is that? Uh, Qatar should not be hosting this World Cup. I think everyone would agree on that. Uh, some shady instances of how they were awarded this um, tournament Basically, most importantly on the fact that there is pretty much well-documented evidence of them exploiting migrant labor to build the said stadiums. And I, I don't want it to be preachy or like a whole morality thing, but that is not a good look. And there's been a lot of uh, reports of many deaths and exploitations uh, since Qatar has been awarded that. Uh, tournament. Well, I think it could be argued that there's uh, quite a few countries in the world who don't focus on the same workplace standards as we do here in the United States. Yeah, or just yeah, in other European countries as or well. Asian, I can yeah. you know I I'm not I don't have actual facts, so I'll I'll pipe down, but um <laughs> I'm not surprised to hear that. It people don't realize that in the United States we have the some of the safest policies and work sites in the entire world if not the safest in the entire world. So Yeah. Oh, well, certainly in the like construction fields there's just a lot of regulation that does not exist in Qatar. Um 
And just another thing, a lot of people were like, well, it's not a footballing country. They have no uh, prior history. I am not concerned about that at all. It's the World Cup. It's the global game. I think it should be in different markets. It, it was a little weird at the time they were awarded said bid in 2010. They had one stadium that met the FIFA requirements. You're supposed to have eight if you were to host this tournament. So they've spent the last decade modernizing the country and pretty much building all of the infrastructure for this tournament. So that that's interesting. And just one last thing on FIFA and their awarding of these tournaments. We cannot expect a good record out of them. I mean, they've, they've gone to Argentina during dictator rule. They've gone to Russia in 2018. <laughs> so we saw how that one panned out. So not good all around. Can we expect Cutter to be a, a good host of people Ugh. from all over the world and no. other cultures? Or is it uh, because, let's face it, in a country where they have so many social rules and, yeah. and there's going to be thousands of people there from all other parts of the world, I can't see this not going horribly. Yeah, I'm going to be blunt. This is a horrible place to have this tournament. Uh, we Qatar is under a, a dictatorship, essentially. They have some of the most backwards social laws, uh, virtually, you know, no rights for women. Obviously, that. with that being said, it's pretty much implied there's no rights for the LGBT community. So I, I really don't see this as a very welcoming place if you're trying to encapsulate the world and you want people from all around the world coming to your country. Did they just pay the right price to I'm, FIFA? Yeah, and the committee that awarded that, I had heard a stat, and I don't want to make up numbers, but I do know the majority of that committee was either uh, investigated, uh, lost their jobs, or straight up convicted of corruption. So that's not good. Um, to kind of cap off this episode, unless we can there might be some more stuff uh 2026 world cup however is coming to the states in a united bid with canada and mexico uh, but the majority of the games are going to be played in the u.s i'll just rattle off the u.s uh sites because they were just recently announced seattle san francisco la kansas city dallas Houston, Atlanta, Miami, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. Um, this is the second time that a World Cup would be in the United States, the last time being in 1994, and I just wanted to pick your brain. Do you have any recollection of that happening? I do. I do have a very good friend uh, who's been into soccer um, well, since we were in high school. He he played on our high school's first men's soccer team. A pioneer of the sport. Yeah. So they didn't even, they didn't even have a sanctioned men's program uh, until this would have been 19, 
86 maybe was the first okay. year. But I, I recall the buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think in 94 it was even a thing. Well, I think a lot yeah. more people are watching European football in the States now. Yeah, um, or just any soccer in general. The the few people that that were into it watched it. I don't. I, it was probably really hard to get coverage. Well, yeah, there was no like real uh, professional league in America of any quality. Uh, part of the decision that got the United States that World Cup bid was that they started uh, a professional league, which became Major League Soccer, and that uh, started in. 1996 so yeah uh i think this time around i i think we're pretty safe in saying there's gonna be a lot more buzz a lot more hype and a lot hopefully a lot more competitive team because uh i mean we'll see how things go in 2022 but this is certainly the most talented group the united states have ever had i would say so that the team from the U.S. will be comprised of players from how many different leagues? Um, or does it not work that way? Well, yeah, it, it does. Um, obviously, MLS will have a few. Uh, the majority of, like, the stars are... I mean, is this Europe. like an Olympic thing where you just take all these these athletes and, yeah. and throw them on a team? Pretty much. I mean, it's more... You, national team soccer is like just part of the sport so like there's international windows where these teams are playing so it's not as irregular as the olympics um but yeah um the the team is comprised of players that play all over europe and in the states as well um but the olympics is like posed as like an amateur thing whereas the world cup and international soccer is not it's professional so uh, yeah, the one interesting thing about the United States is they like to tap into players with multiple nationalities or passports, um, and quite a few of the players are of, let's say, Mexican-American, Dutch-American, German-American heritage, so they do well in the recruiting aspect that way, and it really helps the talent pool of the United States. Well, four years. Four years for that, yeah. And are they going to build anything, or are they uh, reusing well, all existing facilities yeah, here? We have the privilege of, you know, 32 World Cup quality stadiums with the NFL. So, um, yeah, that, that should be exciting. Um, just one last thing. Um, in September, the United States are playing their pretty much World Cup send-off matches against Saudi Arabia in Japan. Uh, so at that point, we're not really discussing who is really going to be on the roster, but rather, you know, the fine-tuning aspect of everything and, uh, you know, getting ready to send them off and back our boys. So that should be fun. Yeah, it's ex exciting stuff coming up yeah a lot so on the cool. horizon yeah um and i did say one last thing but tackling the chicane we're going to be on location this weekend aren't we that's correct uh we will be at mid ohio sports car course 
for the uh, Indy Road Race down there. Um, Saturday and Sunday. Saturday we'll be there for uh, practice and and we have uh, pit paddock passes. So who knows? Might be able to grab a soundbite or two while we're there. Um, and then we'll be there Sunday for the race. And then I, it, well, we can talk about it later, but I, the week, the, the ticket package is Friday also, Mm -hmm. but I'm not, I don't think we we're going to go down Friday. I think we're just going to go down Saturday. So, yeah, uh, that should be a lot of fun though. I would. Yep. Well, and if you haven't been in the pit or the paddock, um, paddock being the garage area, Mm -hmm. uh, you'll. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, Indy is IndyCar is very good at letting the spectators very close to the action. So typically, it's usually just a you know one of those little posts and rope things away from yeah. watching all kinds of stuff, cool stuff happen, and the drivers are typically right there. So who knows? You might. Uh, might get a photo with uh your favorite driver or if you don't have a favorite driver uh, just one that should be buzzing by on his electric bike or whatever so yeah it's yeah. gonna be cool um just very briefly and, and unless you have anything else uh soccer wise uh i don't not at this moment I'm, i'll let you uh okay take I'd, it away here just uh last minute or two here um we've got a race coming up uh this weekend f1 in uh silverston <laughs> um in great britain so uh just a couple of uh quick facts about the track uh looks like it's going to be about 52 laps uh course length is uh 5.8 uh ish kilometers um fastest lap was guess who max Supermax. Supermax for Stappen in 2020, a minute, 27 seconds, and some change. Uh, two DRS detection zones. We've got uh, 18 corners. Um, and this is a, this is a, a favorite of, of F1 fans everywhere just because it's over in Great Britain. So um, should be... Should be a fun race, and we'll we'll have a full recap of that uh, for episode three, and hopefully we'll be able to catch a couple of football matches uh, before we broadcast again. Um, guess that's it, episode two. Thanks, yeah. guys. We'll see you next time.